Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 3. Last week, I provided the high-level summary of Judges, Chapters 4 through 7, a section of the book that involved the Judge Deborah, along with part of the period of the Judge Gideon. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up in the middle of the narrative about Gideon, since I didn't have enough time to get through it last week. And with that, let's get started. But before I do, a quick programming note. Last week's episode was the podcast 288th, and since I aim for at least 3,500 words per episode, sometime in the last couple weeks, I crossed the million-word threshold. To be clear, I don't really know when it happened. It's not like I'm keeping a running tally. Having said that, I do write a minimum of 3,500 words per episode. More likely, it's between 37 and 3,900. And as a point of reference, last week was just four words shy of my 4,000-word limit, and this episode is currently just over 3,900. All of this meaning there's no doubt I've published over a million. What does all of that mean? I'm not sure, except that it's far more than I ever expected. Maybe a testament to the power of persistence. That's it for now, as there's still much history to cover, and I'm encroaching on my word limit. Back to Gideon. When I left off, Gideon had just defeated the Midianites, a battle he took only 300 troops to, where the enemy was said to have been more numerous than the grains of sand on the beach. The next chapter begins with Gideon explaining to the Ephraimites why he didn't call on them to aid in the actual battle. His response is chock full of cultural context, perhaps as dense as any part of the Old Testament narrative I've covered so far. I normally wouldn't go into this much depth into the context in a summary episode, but I might as well, as it probably won't fit well when I do the deeper dive. The conversation went as such. The Ephraimites said to Gideon, What have you done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against the Midianites? And they upbraided him violently. Gideon responded, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizer? God has given into your hands the captains of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? When he said this, their anger against him subsided. That's a lot to unpack. First, what does it mean to be upbraided? Essentially, they scolded him, chastised. They weren't happy that he defeated the enemy and was going to get all of the glory and recognition. What about those grapes, the ones from Ephraim? That's merely an allegory to the way the battle unfolded. Gideon fought the initial battle, but the Midianites turned tail and ran for the hills. In this case, the hills in Ephraim's territory, where the Ephraimites slaughtered them. Gideon is telling the Ephraimites that their victory was much more resounding than his. They killed the Midianite leaders, specifically Oreb and Zeb. The castoffs of their grapes were much better than all of his family's harvest. He's humble just as he was when the angel of the Lord came down to and anointed him. And then his response was, How can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. 
and that family was a Bezer. Here, in this part of the text, after his first great victory, he's using the same humility to disarm his brethren. After this, Gideon leads his 300 troops east, across the Jordan, where they likely collapsed, tired and hungry. One of the things that's consistently lost on the modern reader is that in that era, really, up through the modern era, people lived on the brink of starvation. Droughts, wars, power, all could lead to an almost instantaneous famine. This is why fasting meant so much more, was far different to them than it is to us, among other things. They were near the city of Sukkoth, close enough that Gideon asked the leaders of the city for bread, explaining that they were in pursuit of the kings of Midian, in this case two kings, specifically Ziba and Zalmunna. But the leaders of the city tell him they will not give him anything until after his forces defeat the kings. They were likely afraid of aiding a small force, figuring it would fall to the mightier Midianites. Then they would have to deal with that kingdom's wrath. Gideon wasn't happy, telling the townsfolk that when he returns victorious, he will trample their flesh on the thorns of the wilderness and the briars. There's a visual. He leads his ragtag, water-lapping fighters to the next town, Peniel, where he received a similar welcome, in this case telling them that when he returns, he will tear down their tower, indicating the city was protected by a formidable wall. Then, we're given more insight into the enemy that the 300 men were on their way to fight. Two leaders are specifically named, Ziba and Zalmunna, and they were in Karkar with their army, numbering in the neighborhood of 15,000, 50 to 1. This force was described as all of the remaining forces of the army of the still yet unnamed people of the east. While this certainly sounds overwhelming, the narrative then lets us know that 120,000 men of the allied enemy armies had already fallen. Though, do recall that these were not defeated by the 300 alone, but by other Israelite forces as they retreated. Still, though, not great odds, at least on paper. But wars and battles, and for that matter, ball games, aren't waged on paper. Gideon led his troops towards the enemy a route that's described as being up the caravan route east of Noba and Jagbaha, meaning uphill along a well-worn trading route and giving me a couple places to cover later. When he got to where the army of the east was encamped, they were taken by surprise. The two previously named leaders fled, only to be quickly captured. Then, a confusing part of the text, these same two leaders who in the past couple textual references were said to be leading the army of the east, were named as kings of Midian. They recalled this earlier in the chapter, but it was quite a distance in the text from where the army was called that of the east. What to make of this? There are numerous possibilities. Working under the assumption that the text is true, which is one of the caveats I made in the very first episode of the podcast, several years ago. Using this logic, then there are two plausible explanations. First, the Midianite leaders could have been leading foreign troops, perhaps hired mercenaries or conscripted vassals, or something similar. Plausible. 
Second, people of the East could refer to a subset of people and places ruled by Midian, a distinction that may have meant more to the ancient reader than it does to us today. I may explore this further when I circle back for the deeper dive. Back in the text, when the Midianite leaders fled, their armies were thrown into a panic, seeming to be part of the strategy Gideon was frequently employing. The text doesn't say what happened after this, and instead goes straight to what happened post-battle. The presumption is that Gideon's troops either slaughtered the enemy, or they fled to their homelands, or something in between. Either way, Gideon and the 300 emerged victorious. After the battle, Gideon returned from the fight, taking a route that is described as the ascent of Heres. The context implies Heres is a mountain, but where exactly is never said. There are a few places elsewhere in the text that use the name of the mountain as a suffix to that place's name, but beyond those references, not much is known about it. What is known is where the route led Gideon to somewhere near Succoth. While on the road, he captures a young man from that town. And it was just earlier in the same chapter that the people of Succoth refused to give any bread to Gideon's men, leaving them hungry, with Gideon's response being a promise to trample your flesh on the thorns of the wilderness and on briars after he returns victorious, a promise of a future event. And now, in that present time, it was time for payback. But before that, Gideon wanted the names of the city's leaders. The young man, in that era probably meaning a young teenager, listed out the officials and elders of the city, 77 people in total. When I was writing this episode out, I was tempted to phrase it as 77 men. But given how I just covered that one of the first judges was a woman, Deborah, It wouldn't be unheard of for an elder or official to be a woman. Unusual, but not unheard of. So, I'll leave it as the text does, at least the New Revised Standard, as people. Both the NIV and King James specifically calls them men, likely owing to the particular translator's discretion. Now that Gideon has the 77 names, he heads to the city of Succoth with the two Midianite leaders in tow. When he finally gets there, possibly with a wry, revengeful smile on his face. Then the text quotes him, and he quotes what those same elders had told him before the battle. Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Do you already have in possession the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna, that we should give bread to your troops who are exhausted? Next, Gideon took the elders of the city and thorns from the wilderness, and not to forget briars, and with these he trampled the people of Succoth. What does this mean? I don't know. I doubt he killed them, and the footnote in the New Revised Standard says he could have merely taught them. What is clear is that these leaders didn't escape unscathed. Neither did the people of Penuel, just as promised he broke down their tower. And in their case, the text specifically says he killed the men of that city. Which is one of the reasons why I don't think he did the same in Succoth, because we're not told that in the text. The history of the battles with the Midianite leaders isn't quite done. 
as the two named are still alive. Gideon turns to them and says, What about the men whom you killed at Tabor? Meaning, it's payback time. The two kings try to kiss up to Gideon, telling him, As you are, so were they, every one of them. They resembled the sons of a king. Gideon saw through it, retorting, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. Gideon calls out his own, oldest son, Jether, telling him to dispatch the two, probably wanting to add a final bit of indignity to the kings, to be killed by a boy, a lad so young he was not even referred to as a young man. Jether, though, owing to being so young, did not draw his sword, as he was afraid. The two kings then address Gideon specifically, You come and kill us possibly as a taunt, thinking he didn't have the heart or courage. That was a mistake, as Gideon quickly took them up on their offer. Then a weird little bit of information, with the particular context likely being lost to the passage of over 3,000 years. Gideon took the crescents that were on the necks of their camels, a specific piece of booty. Crescents could also be translated as ornaments, My take on this is that he took the personal, valuable property of the now-dead kings as his own spoils, his trophy collection. With all of this having recently happened, from being approached by the angel of God to his continuous victories, it would be easy to think he was as good of a leader as Israel would see in the period. But he wasn't perfect, and there's relief in that. More on what he would come to do in a minute. Having recently seen what he did, the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son, and your grandson also, for you have delivered us out of the hand of Midian, a foreshadowing to their later first king, Saul. Gideon knew better, telling them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Put a pin in that statement for two reasons, one more immediate and the other more generational. He then has an ask. Let me make a request of you. Each of you give me an earring he has taken as booty. Then we're parenthetically told that their enemies, at least those they recently defeated, had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Whoa, pause here for a second. Ishmaelites? meaning the sons, descendants of Ishmael, Abraham's son through Sarah's servant. That's the first time Ishmael, or the Ishmaelites, have been mentioned since Genesis, a blast from the past. They're most definitely going to be in a deeper dive. The people willingly gave Gideon the jewelry he asked for, spreading out a garment on the ground, probably a robe and each throwing on it an earring they had taken as booty, so much that it weighed 1,700 shekels. And remember, this was gold. 1,700 shekels is about 43 pounds, 20 kilograms. Today, that much gold is worth around $1.2 million, give or take. And Gideon certainly took. Then there's more interesting detail. 
Gideon also took his booty, the crescents, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, all in addition to whatever it was that was on the camels. Obviously, crescents and pendants were the king's jewelry, and the purple garments, probably rich fabric, dyed with Tyrian purple, the traditional color of royalty sourced from the mucus of several species of murex snails, a sure sign of wealth. With all of this, Gideon made an ephod, meaning a sleeveless garment, probably similar to that worn by the Levite priest. He would display his ephod in his hometown, Ophrah. Then an interesting phrase, directly quoted from the text. All Israelite prostituted themselves to it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. The takeaway is that he didn't want to be the king and instead wanted the people to worship God directly. And just like that, he got caught up in it too. The land, though, did get 40 years of rest. He was good, but not perfect. His story continues just a bit more. Gideon would continue to live in his own house, becoming the father to some 70 sons through his many wives. We're not told the exact number of wives he had. He did have a son, Abimelech, through his concubine from Shechem. Why we're given this specific detail becomes apparent in the next chapter. But first, Gideon lives a long life, long enough that his death is said to have occurred when he was at a good old age. He was buried in his father's tomb in his hometown. His story isn't quite through, though. As soon as Gideon died, the Israelites relapsed, again, and again worshipped the Canaanite Bells, specifically making the version known as Bel Beareth their god. They forgot their own god, the one who had delivered them from the brink, from their enemies, so many times. The chapter ends telling us that they didn't even remain loyal to the house of Gideon. And that's Judges chapter 8, but the story of Gideon continues into the next. In chapter 9, one of Gideon's seven sons, the same Abimelech as the last chapter, went to Shechem to his mother's family and asked, Which is better for you, that all seventy of Gideon's sons rule over you, or that one rule over you? Seems a bit rhetorical, but it wasn't. Abimelech then reminds his mother's family that he is their relative, And this is where his father, Gideon's relationship with his mother is important. She was his concubine, which also likely means he's their only connection to the house of Gideon and the seeming power that went along with it. If not for Abimelech, his mother's relatives are essentially nobody. Powerless. They do what they do and tell Abimelech that they will follow him. All of this occurring within the earshot of what the text calls the town's lords, probably meaning the elders, maybe the other rulers. His mom's family then gives him 70 pieces of silver, pieces that came from the temple of Bear Beareth. Remember, and I've mentioned this a time or two, but at that time, silver may have been more valuable than gold. Abimelech takes the money and hires what are described as worthless and reckless fellows. That's the actual phrase, not a ringing endorsement. Worthless and reckless. 
The NIV calls them reckless scoundrels, while the King James says they are vain and light. Take your pick. None of them are complimentary. These fellows then become Abimelech's followers. He then went to his father's house in the town of Ophrah and killed all of his brothers, all on the same stone, all except Jotham, who lived only because he hid. Immediately after this, the leaders of both Shechem and Beth Milo made Abimelech their king, with the coronation occurring beside the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Likely the pillar and oak present in both the stories of Abraham and Joshua. Jotham hears of all of this, climbs to the summit of Mount Gerizim, and shouts at the top of his lungs to the rulers of Shechem. What does he tell them? A parable that's become known as the parable of the trees. I'll skip a recitation. Just know it's a story about how trees of character, ones that are busy producing good fruit, do not become rulers. Instead, those acting in bad faith should be consumed by fire. Jotham then asked them if they acted in good faith and honor when they made Abimelech their king, and if they dealt fairly with Gideon, having done for him and his house as they deserved. He then reminds them that his father fought for them, rescuing them from Midian. And what did they do in return? Killed Gideon's son and made Abimelech, the son of his slave, their king. Why? Only because of his relationship to them. Then, a challenge. If they believed they acted in good faith, then they should rejoice. But if they didn't act in good faith, then he hopes they are consumed by fire. What happens next? Nothing. Nothing except Jotham runs away and flees to the city of Beer, where he lived in fear of his brother. And nothing else, at least not immediately. Abimelech would rule over Israel for three years. Then, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the lords of Shechem, who began their treachery towards their king. Things such as setting ambushes on mountaintops, robbing all who passed by, presumably so the robbers would be reported to the king, and it would show the king had no control over the land. At some point, a man named Gaul moved the Shechem. From where? No one knows. The text is silent. The leaders of the city were so overjoyed that they threw a party in the Canaanite temple. At the party, they went as far as to make fun of the king, a decision aided by copious amounts of flowing wine. Gaul speaks up, saying, Who is Abimelech, and why should we serve him? Gaul then reminds the people that Abimelech's father, Gideon, had at one time been subservient to Shechem. Why should they now be subservient to him? He then lobbies for the leaders to make him king so that he can dispatch Abimelech. But not everyone thought highly of the plan. The ruler of the city, Zebul, sends word of it to Abimelech, asking him to quickly bring his army to put the interloper down. Abimelech doesn't take the threat lightly, bringing four companies of troops to the city, maybe as quick as overnight. Gaul sees the approaching troops, assembles his forces, and heads to the battlefield. Abimelech swiftly defeats Gaul, with the newly arrived threat, along with his family, fleeing from whence he came, wherever that was. 
The next day, the people of the city went out to the fields, likely as part of the normal agricultural process, sowing, reaping, something. Abimelech finds out about this and sets a trap, sending his troops to lay in wait. There, he has the people of Shechem killed. All of them. He then burned the city and sowed the ground with salt, like the Romans are said to have done to Carthage after the Third Punic War, fought over 1,000 years later. While this certainly sounds extreme, it's believed to have been a not-so-rare tradition in the region after putting down a rebellion. Then, the narrative apparently skips backwards, or something was lost in translation, as some of the leaders of Shechem took refuge in the Canaanite temple. Abimelech has his men gather up firewood, placing it against the tower where the leaders were hiding. You should be able to guess what happened next. When it was over, the 1,000 or so people hiding in the tower were dead, too. All of this in his hometown. He then headed to the city of Thebes. The people there hid in their tower, too. He executes the same fire plan, once again gathering up wood. But before he could set the tower ablaze, a woman throws a millstone from the tower, one that manages to find the top of Abimelech's head. But it doesn't quite kill him, instead just severely injuring. He cries out for his armor-bearer, asking the young man to finish him off. He tells his servant why, so that people will not say about him, a woman killed him. The servant does as asked, and that's it for Abimelech, the wayward son of Gideon. When the Israelites saw that he was dead, everyone went home. Which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll pick up with the story of the judges, Tola and Jair. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase, Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.